Hey, this is David Schultz, audio producer here at Bloomberg Law. Just wanted to let you know we've created a couple new ways for you to interact with us. If you have feedback on this episode or any of our other podcasts, please give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 703-341-3690. That's 703-341-3690. We might just use your comments in a future episode. You can also reach out to us by email at podcast at bloomberglaw.com or on Twitter, at BLaw. We would love to hear your thoughts. Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. Kimberly, we finally got the long-awaited, contentious opinion in the case about the ACCA, mm-hmm. not the ACA. Sorry, guys, still got to wait for that one. That's right, we're going to be talking about the Armed Career Criminal Act, everyone's favorite jumbled recidivist law. But on a subject with perhaps some wider appeal, we're bringing on Hogan Lovell's Kate Stetson, who's going to talk about the fight for gender equality in the military draft. The court rejected a petition raising the issue this week, but it produced an interesting statement along with it from an interesting lineup of justices. Interesting. Quite interesting and noteworthy, I should add. <laughs> Tell us about the grant we got this week before we bring Kate on. Sure. So the Supreme Court added another case to its docket next term, bringing the number of cases to 17 for the 2021 term, which, of course, will start in October. We'll likely get some more grants as we close out this term. So, for example, on Thursday, the court considered an affirmative action case that seems like a good candidate for review. We'll probably get word in the coming weeks on whether or not the justices will hear this case against Harvard. But the court's latest grant in U.S. versus Fazagaza centers on the state secrets privilege, that is information that tends to implicate national security. So in the absence of a statute regulating how courts should deal with evidence alleged to implicate state secrets, the courts followed this judge-made rule uh, that didn't require that that information be turned over to a court, and judges pretty much just relied on the good faith representations of the government. But the Ninth Circuit in this case found that uh, all that changed when Congress added a specific procedure for dealing with this kind of information in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And that requires that the information be turned over to judges to consider in camera and ex parte, meaning that the non-governmental party doesn't get to see the evidence at least not at first. So the government appealed, saying that FISA procedure was meant for a narrow category of evidence. That is, when the government wants to affirmatively use that information against another party, but is blocked by the state secrets privilege. And the government says that's not supposed to apply here, where it's the non-governmental party who wants to use the evidence against the federal government. Um, So just one other thing to note is that this is the second state secrets case that the justices have on their docket for next term. Uh, In late April, the justices also agreed to hear United States versus Zebediah. That one's also out of the Ninth Circuit. It's another evidentiary dispute, this one dealing with discovery. So lots of state secrets next term. Tune in next term where the secrets will be revealed. Or, Or maybe they won't be. We'll see. Should we go to our guest? Uh, we should. Um, just to set this up, we did have a notable denial that we wanted to chat with this week's guests about. That denial dealt with the country's mail-only draft, and in particular, U.S. policy requires males 18 to 25 to register for the draft, should it be needed. Um, did you do this, Jordan? Have you? Are you up on your selective service? 
I did. I vaguely remember filling out this card, thinking it was kind of weird. That was the extent of my service, which I've carried out dutifully. I appreciate a little more respect around here, starting now that you know that. <laughs> uh, let's bring on our guest, Jordan. And joining us to chat about the case is Kate Stetson, a partner at Hogan Levels, who, along with the ACLU, represented the National Coalition of Men, who challenged the law at issue here. And I think most important for Kate in her career is that she is a repeat guest on Cases and Controversies. So um, <laughs> thanks so much for coming back. Uh, so thanks this, for having me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so this issue isn't new for the court. Can you tell us a little bit about the case that it heard in 1981? Sure. So the, the case that the court heard in 1981 was the case of Rostker versus Goldberg. And it was uh, very similar to this case, a challenge that was brought by uh, a man who contended that the statute we're talking about, um, which requires all male uh, residents of the U.S. to register for the selective service, um, discriminated uh, on the basis of sex and should be um, should be vacated. The court at that time concluded that because the military at that time um, did not permit women to serve in combat roles, uh, that there was still an appropriate reason why the selective service statute that we're talking about um, identified only men as as uh, needing to register. Mm-hmm. So that that was the case in 1981. Of course, the point that we made in our petition is that things have seismically changed since 1981. Women are now allowed in combat roles uh, of of all sorts and serve very admirably and well in all of those roles. Right. So given that the facts on the ground have really changed, um, tell us about who brought this challenge and why. So the group that brought this challenge, as you mentioned, Kimberly, is a group called the National Coalition for Men. Uh, They represent themselves as being uh, formed to guard against and challenge uh, negative stereotypes of, of men. Uh, They brought this case much in the Rostger mold. Uh, Two young men brought the challenge to the selective service system, claiming that it discriminated on the basis of sex. One of the points that we made in our brief is if you if you think about it for more than a minute, that this really isn't a discrimination that that attaches only to one gender or another. It is Mm -hmm. also very much discrimination against women. And you actually see that in some of the legislative history of this statute. Uh, Legislators saying, you know, women belong at home. What on earth would happen if a woman was called upon to serve and her husband had to stay home with the children? You know, there is a there is a, a pervasive sense um, throughout this history of this statute that women belong in a particular role as the protectee and men belong, and only men belong in the role as the protector. So how did the lower courts receive your challenge? It seemed like it was kind of dead in the water given the Supreme Court's you know, previous decision in this case. That is, uh, I think if the Fifth Circuit wanted to write a shorter opinion, that's probably what it, exactly what it would have said. Um, the, the district court actually ruled in our favor after a lot of ups and downs and a transfer of venue to Texas. Um, but the district court ruled um, in favor of the plaintiffs. 
the Fifth Circuit reversed. And what it basically said, and the reason it made such a clean vehicle for certiorari is, we are bound by Rosker. We understand that the facts on the ground have changed significantly, but Rosker says what it says, and you are bringing the exact same challenge, uh, and there is nothing that we, the Fifth Circuit, can do about that, so onward you go. Uh, so that's that's why it was, it was dead in the water precisely because Rosker was still found to be controlling precedent. So on you went to the Supreme Court, but uh, June 7th, the Supreme Court declined to hear this case um, and to review its earlier ruling. An interesting statement by Justice Sotomayor, which was joined by Justices Breyer and Kavanaugh, a really classic trio that we see just all the time in Supreme Court litigation. All the time, habitually. (laughs) And she kind of notes that the Supreme or the that Congress is currently considering this issue. And she says it remains to be seen whether or not, you know, they will end this kind of gender based. Uh, discrimination, but at least for now, she said the court should hold off. So first, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what efforts there are in Congress. This seems like there might actually be some things happening. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm saying yeah with with sort of skepticism because of what we point out in our reply brief, which is mm-hmm. Congress had the opportunity to act in 1980, 1991, 1993, 2013, 2015, 2020, and it never has. Mm -hmm. And the government in these cases, in fact, in this case, back from its incipients, has always said, don't you worry, you know, Congress is going to take care of it. Back in 2013, they said, we are actively involved in, you know, making sure Congress is all over this. Congress is not all over this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last time Congress had an opportunity to, to fix this, it farmed the issue out to the commission that we that we cite many times in our briefs, who came back and said, yes, this statute should be changed. Or, uh, you know, I think there's a view, too, that it should just be eliminated. But for gender purposes, the statute should be changed. And instead of taking up that issue, Congress, as we say in our briefs, farmed it out to about 13 different committees. Um, you know, there there is, again, the representation that things will change, mm-hmm. uh, but there is history to suggest that they will not. So, you know, some court watchers noted that the statement was a little bit odd in that it seems like the court is telling Congress, look, we'll give you time to do this, but if you don't do it, we're going to do it. Kind of a nice little legislative process you have there. Uh, wondering what you think about that. <laughs> it's an adorable legislative process. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I think that's exactly what this was. And, and more than that, I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating and, and really um, uh, encouraging about this unusual opinion joined by this you know, unusual trio, is if you look at the first several cases that are cited by Justice Sotomayor, the first two cases are a Ginsburg opinion, citing Justice Ginsburg's famous BMI opinion. The third case is a case in which Justice Ginsburg for the ACLU, before she was a justice, filed an amicus brief. And the final three are all Justice Ginsburg argued cases. So, you know, that's no accident. Um, you have a you have a quintet of Justice Ginsburg cases leading this short statement about denial of certiorari. So, yes, I think there's a message here. And yes, I think the message is take a look at these five cases and here's what's going to happen if you don't fix this. Mm-hmm. Kate, I'm wondering, though, it's an encouraging statement for you in some respects, right? But it's a statement only joined by three justices. So I'm wondering, given that, 
how encouraging is it really without having, say, Kagan joined? I know people aren't obligated to join decisions. Maybe they could be mm -hmm. holding secret views. It's an issue we've discussed before about the court's shadow docket. But do you think there is more support on the court than just these three justices? There's just for whatever reason only those three joined this statement? You know, it's it's so hard to speculate and to read the tea leaves behind any of this. You know, my my speculation, and it's really only that from the face of who did sign, is that there is support across a range of justices uh, for taking up this issue at the appropriate time. Um, you know, there may be others, and I suspect there are others on that court, uh, who would be willing to engage very directly with this issue, but who wanted to make sure that Congress had the latitude to do what they need to do. So, you know, I don't I don't take this, you know, this is a statement respecting the denial of certiorari. It is not a dissent from the denial of certiorari. So Jordan, your, your point is right, that this isn't necessarily a guarantee that those three votes are somehow in the bag. But I think it does um, bespeak a commitment to continue to keep an eye on this issue. And remember, you only need four justices to grant. Uh, so if, if three of them are keeping an eye on things, they just need to pull, for example, Justice Kagan along and they've got themselves a grant. So we've been kind of counting up, um, you know, who's joining what opinions and where votes might be. I want to just shift gears a little bit and talk with you about some of the lineups that we've been getting this year. Um, because at least so far, we've seen we haven't seen the kind of ideological divide that we ex might expect from a court with uh, six Republican appointed justices and three Democratic ones. And in particular, we've seen a handful of cases that are six three, six two, five four, five three, um, where the we see the more liberal justices in the majority with a mix of conservative mm -hmm. justices that have really, you know, shifted depending on the case. So, wondering what you make of this. You know, we had one recently where we saw, you know, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett in the majority against Roberts, Thomas Alito. Um, you know, a lot of these kind of shuffling around. What What's mm -hmm. going on here? I, I think what I make of it is that you can't cram, uh, you can't cram ideology into a headline or a soundbite. No, I think oh, well, that's not helpful for us. I, mean. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, it, you know, what's, What's been the case, particularly over the last few years, when the when the rhetoric has been so heightened around judges, judges and justices, is that you think about judges and justices appointed by different administrations as oppositional to each other, uh, in all respects at all times, and the reality is and always has been that that's not true. Um, that there are circumstances in which uh, the justices are perfectly aligned. You know, there is, there's been a significant number of unanimous cases mm -hmm. that have come out of the court this year. That's not unusual either. Um, you know, last term, I think the, the unanimous cases were about 35, 36%, including cases where somebody wrote separately but said, I agree with the outcome. But, you know, the, the, there's a huge number of cases where justices actually all agree. Justice Ginsburg and Justice to Scalia, who are think, thought of, I think, as the two kind of dictionary examples of oppositional, agreed with each other 70% of the time. Uh, 
So, you know, the the uh, the, the myth out there that there is this uh, war of six against three or five against four, I think, is really belied by these alignments you're talking about. You know, the case that came out recently with Justice Gorsuch joining, you know, what would be perceived as the, the more liberal majority is a simple statutory interpretation case. Mm-hmm. Justice Gorsuch read it one way, Justice Kavanaugh in dissent read it another. That's the bread and butter of the Supreme Court's work. And that doesn't fall to a particular, you know, uh, approach or ideology. So you mentioned unanimous cases, um, you know, and you mentioned about 35 percent, the number is about the same so far this term. And, you know, it is true that Justice Ginsburg and Scalia agreed 70 percent of the time. It's that 30%, though, that tends to be in some of the most consequential, most controversial yeah. cases. I'm wondering if you expect the, you know, 9080 decisions to continue as we get closer to the end of June. They will not continue <laughs> as we get closer to the end of June. And they never have continued until we get closer to the end of June. The reason that all of us, you know, you, I, everybody pays so much attention to things that happen at the court in June is because that's where the most difficult decisions usually are issued. Um, so it, this year is not, you know, unusual in that respect. Everybody's going to be looking kind of right down the line towards the end, just as they were last term for, you know, Bostock, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but just as in Bostock, strange things can happen. So, you know, there's no guarantee about what that 5-4, what that 6-3 looks like. Right. So just for our listeners, Bostock is the case that um, had Justice Gorsuch crossing over with the then four liberal justices um, to say that uh, protections, anti-discrimination protections for workers apply to LGBT workers as well. well I thought, Kate, it was interesting if you were talking about the boarding case with Gorsuch joining the more liberal members in the majority and Kavanaugh in the dissent. I think it would be a mistake to talk about Gorsuch or even Thomas in this case as being ones who crossed over. I think at this point in Gorsuch's mm-hmm. tenure, right, you know, aside from death penalty in certain other cases, as you know, mm-hmm. putting Gorsuch in the majority for a defendant in a criminal case isn't that unusual. If anything, if you'd ask me who was crossing over in this case, I think you could say it was Breyer in some mm-hmm. ways, who's not a guarantee for a criminal defendant. So I think that's just yet another wrinkle that we have in the background and also just to throw in, you know, talk of Briar whenever we can these days as we're obligated to. <laughs> Is that a prerequisite these days? I, I'd forgotten to mention Briar. Sorry, Briar. Um, so Jordan, you're you're totally right. I mean, and, and I think this too is something that often gets overlooked. You know, Justice Scalia was one of the most significant champions of uh, defendants' rights in certain circumstances, Sixth Amendment rights, for example. So, um, you know, when you think about the the mold that certain justices fall into, um, I think you're right to perceive that there are, you know, instances where Justice Gorsuch is going to be on that uh, on that on that side of the equation, and it doesn't mean that it's some kind of departure from the norm. Uh, you know, what we may be seeing from Justice Gorsuch is that he's more in that kind of Scalia mold. Well, before we um, tell Jordan that he's totally right any more times, because that's a dangerous thing to, uh, to tell him. Uh, Jordan, especially. you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insight. This has been really helpful, and um, hopefully we'll have you on again sometime Always soon. Always fun to talk with you both. Thanks so much. Uh, so, Jordan, you mentioned this case, Borden, um, which had a really interesting... And noteworthy. 
and notable uh, breakdown lineup here. What's this case? This is one that we got this last week as well. Right. This is the Armed Career Criminal Act is the background. That's the law at issue here. It's sort of a three strikes law. If you have three or more prior violent felony convictions and you're convicted of a federal gun crime, you face a 15-year mandatory minimum. But the issue in a bunch of cases that the Supreme Court has been constantly dealing with over the years is what qualifies as a violent felony. Seems like something that should be somewhat simple to figure out, but it has not been. And so in this case, Borden, an offense qualifies as a violent felony under the Armed Career Criminal Act if it necessarily involves, quote, the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person of another, end quote. The question in Borden was whether a prior offense that could be committed recklessly qualifies as violent. And to get the answer out up front, the answer is no, according to a five-justice majority of the court. And if you care about the outcome and that's all, then reckless offenses no longer can trigger the Armed Career Criminal Act's steep 15-year mandatory minimums. Beyond that is when it starts to get weird. Yeah, Jordan, tell us about this interesting decision we got from Justice Thomas to actually provide the fifth vote in this really bonkers 5-4 lineup that we have. Right. So Thomas, as is not infrequently the case, is sort of in his own universe here. And to help give some context to that universe, I'll explain a bit about the plurality opinion from Justice Kagan. So Kagan writes for four justices, Kagan, Sotomayor, Breyer, and Gorsuch. Kagan's opinion explained how in order to qualify as a violent felony under this provision, under the act, you need more intentional conduct than just recklessness. She laid out a bunch of examples, for example, people driving recklessly, shoplifters running away, winds up trampling some innocent bystander. And her bottom line is this is not the stuff that Congress was going after when it passed this big, bad Armed Career Criminal Act. Right. Like these people aren't the people who are more likely to use a gun dangerously simply because they were like skiing recklessly. Right. And so that's that's the gist of the implications of Kagan's decision. Basically, it was two parts, the implications and the, the statutory construction. And so Thomas, he agreed he agreed on the statutory construction aspect, but on a different part of the statute, <laughs> which doesn't matter at all as to the outcome. It just matters if you care about the reasoning of how they got there. So we talked before about how some of these recent opinions can come down to one word or one syllable. Kagan's opinion focused on the word against in this part of the statute where it says the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against, against the person of another. For the Kagan plurality, that was what made all the difference. That against modifying the use means you need some kind of intentionality. You can't just be reckless. Now, the government said you're reading too much into this against stuff. It's not necessarily requiring this heightened mental state. They said it's more of this passive thing. It gave an example of waves crashing against the shore or a baseball hitting against the outfield fence. That was what the government was saying, and the plurality rejected that, and Justice Thomas didn't go along with that either. 
he focused just on the use, the use of physical force. According to him, as he written previously, that's all that's required to show that reckless crimes don't qualify under the act. You need intentionality. And so Thomas agreed with the bottom line, making five justices to say reckless crimes don't qualify to trigger the act. What Thomas was mad about was yet another <laughs> Armed Career Criminal Act decision, Johnson, <laughs> authored by Probably Scalia. Probably the only Armed Career Criminal Act case that, you know, court watchers are actually familiar with if they don't practice in this area. Right. right. So this was the Justice Scalia authored 2015 decision, which struck down another part of the Armed Career Criminal Act for being too vague. And Thomas was mad about that then, and he still is now because he didn't think <laughs> that part of the law should be struck down as vague. And he said, look, I'm agreeing with the Kagan plurality on this bottom line, but Mr. Borden should by no means consider himself not an arms career criminal because, according to Thomas, if that now struck down provision from Johnson were still intact, Borden's prior reckless conviction would qualify as a violent felony. And so Thomas is upset that that part of the law no longer exists. So it was really unnecessary for him to bring up that whole discussion. <laughs> uh, nonetheless, he did it. And so here we are talking about it. So um, speaking of unnecessary things, uh, we kind of have this quibbling between Justice Kagan and Justice Kavanaugh. Again, we saw this um, in an earlier decision where they are kind of respectfully, I have that in air quotes, um, kind of going at each other in, in footnotes. And we see that again here, right? I mean, tell us a little bit about this dispute. Right. And as you mentioned, another recent example of this that we saw was in the Edwards against Van Noy case, the case about jury retroactivity, where there was a lot of back and forth jousting and footnotes and whatnot. And we saw some of that here where Kagan's opinion was almost making fun of mm -hmm. Kavanaugh's dissent because mm -hmm. just to very quickly summarize Kavanaugh's dissent, which is joined by Roberts, Alito, and Barrett, he said he takes a totally different approach in terms of the implications and the statutory construction. He says, look, you're listing all of these examples of reckless crimes, you know, there are some other pretty serious reckless crimes, even homicides, that now aren't going to count as triggers under the Armed Career Criminal Act. And they agreed with the government's approach about against not meaning what the plurality says it means, the whole waves crashing and baseballs and whatnot. And Kagan also, again, was basically making fun of Kavanaugh's dissent for advancing an alternative argument, which the government wasn't even advancing, is that this against language was a term of art that doesn't require importing this analysis about a mental state into it. And Kagan said something like, there's a reason no one else was advancing that argument, <laughs> uh, because it's stupid, is basically what she was saying. Paraphrasing, you're paraphrasing. That's, that's I'm paraphrasing. The, the, the way she term, actually but... put it might have actually you know, been more impactful, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I thought the, the thing that stuck out to me was her footnote where she says, I'm going to just read it now. It said, the dissent also goes through a complicated counting exercise about how different justices had divided in this and two other cases, apparently to show how unfair it is that the dissent's view has not prevailed here, which, okay. <laughs> right. Saying, look, quit your whining. You lost. You're just complaining about why you lost. Get over it. 
All right. Well, I think um, one of the most, uh, after that um, long discussion of Borden, I think one of the most important things that we can actually take from uh, this decision is that it was one of three cases left in November uh, to be decided. And just because of the way that the Supreme Court likes to divide up its, uh, its work, there's a pretty good chance that we know that the chief and Alito are going to be writing that a CA, single A, single C case, um, as well as the LGBT case, Fulton, um, which, you know, pits uh, anti-discrimination laws against religious freedom. So um, that was a little bit of tea leaves that we that we got from from the Borden case. So we're going to see Roberts again coming under fire from Republicans for upholding Obamacare yet again. I think he'll have a little bit more support this time around. It doesn't seem like, you know, one of the interesting things that I think really fell under the wire during um, Barrett's confirmation, there were all these cases about this Affordable Care Act case and how it could end the Affordable Care Act, and all of that is true. Um, Barrett actually sat on a mock trial of this case or uh, a moot court of this case, and she actually voted to uphold the Affordable Care Act. So, um, doesn't mean she will hear, but is that I, precedent? <laughs> it's precedent upon non-precedent. Uh, anyway, we did get another decision, one that is unanimous. Yeah, tell us about that, Kimberly Sanchez against Mayorkas. So this is yet another immigration case. We've still got one more to go. Uh, this one deals with temporary protective status. Uh, this is a humanitarian policy that allows immigrants from countries in distress to stay in the U.S. and work on a temporary basis. But even though temporary, these designations can last a really long time. So here we're dealing with a couple, couple from El Salvador, which has been uh, in TPS since 2001. Um, you know, other countries on this list think Yemen, Somalia, Venezuela, places like that. So the question here is whether immigrants under TPS, um, <laughs> sorry, a little note to myself, I'm always saying TPS status, which is like ATM machine. So uh, the question here is whether immigrants under TPS can apply for a green card, even when they entered the country unlawfully. So as they've done before in immigration cases, the justices resolved the question by looking at what they said was the plain meaning of the statute. And the court unanimously said that TPS doesn't cure an unlawful entry. Uh, but just wanted to note that individuals who did enter the country legally say they came in through a student visa, but were late, later granted TPS don't seem to be barred from applying for green card status. And this, of course, allows people to stay and live um, permanently in the United States. So more of a favorable status. So that's going to do it for our cases today. That's right. We're looking at another week of Monday and Thursday opinions, which we're looking forward to recapping for you all again next week. So tune in then. Until then, thanks for listening. For our next season of Uncommon Law, we're looking at the regulatory future of big tech. The giants need to be broken up. Facebook, Google, all of them. Is big tech impinging on your right to free speech? They've had unchecked power to censor, restrict, edit, shape, hide, alter. Misinformation, disinformation. It's like a big Venn diagram. We do not want to become the arbiters of truth. We're calling this series Unchecked. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.